Good morning. It's always a privilege to open God's Word with you. Uh, as I begin, I, I want to uh, express my surprise that uh, the elders have invited me back to preach. You see, there's a very troubling pattern that's developing, and that is the fact that I was the preacher who was in the pulpit the morning that this building caught on fire back in 2009. And now I am the preacher who last preached in that pulpit inside before a global pandemic struck. So I don't know what conclusion to draw from that, but I will just say um, it's an expression of faith, apparently, on the part of the elders to allow me up here in this pulpit again. Uh, I'm excited that we're returning to Galatians, and I'm hoping that my notes don't blow away. So Chad Twombly, be ready. You are my designated sermon note runner, if that happens, but uh, we'll, we'll make a go of this. Um, Galatians is one of those books that I'm uh, deeply invested in because uh, I've spent much of my academic life studying it, and it's one of those books that if you're away from it for a while and then you jump back into it, it takes a little bit of uh, reorienting ourselves to get there. So. Uh, I wanted to start by just trying to refresh our memories as to uh, what's going on. So Paul founded these churches during his first missionary journey, and sometime after he left, false teachers came in. These were Jews who claimed to be Christians, but they were saying that the gospel message was more than what Paul had said. They were essentially saying that, yes, faith in Jesus is important, but you also have to do what God commanded in the Mosaic law in order to be right with God. So their message was basically a Jesus plus your own works are what gets you to be right with God. And they also seem to have been questioning Paul's legitimacy as an apostle. They seem to have claimed that, well, Paul, you're sort of a second-tier apostle at best in comparison to these real apostles in Jerusalem. And so Paul writes this letter to address these concerns, and in these first two chapters, Paul is defending the nature of the gospel as well as his own apostolic authority. He makes it clear that just like those apostles in Jerusalem, he received the gospel message directly from Jesus Christ himself and that he is on the same page when it comes to the content of the gospel with those pillar apostles in Jerusalem. That the heart of the gospel is at some level that a person is declared not guilty, in other words, justified by faith and not by your own efforts to keep God's commands. So by the time you get to Galatians chapter 3 and 4, Paul is reaching the heart of his argument here to try to explain the nature of the gospel. And as a result, he lays it out in terms of who are the true sons of Abraham. Now, that might not be a pressing question that many of us have, but it's an important question because at the heart of that question is the answer to who we are as the people of God, our status before God, and even ultimately, what is God doing to fix what is broken in this sinful world? And so as a result, Paul began in the first part of chapter 3 that Kate read to try to explain that being a fully justified son of Abraham 
one who receives the blessings that God had promised to Abraham, is based on the same kind of faith that Abraham himself had. You see, Abraham believed in the God of the promise and in the promises of God, and therefore God declared him to be not guilty in his sight. And so in the same way, we as Christians believe in Jesus Christ as the one who paid the penalty for our sins, and therefore we are declared not guilty before God. Jesus took upon himself the curse that you and I deserved for our failure to keep God's law so that we could receive the blessings that God had promised to Abraham. So Jesus, even though he was the blessed one, became cursed so that we who were cursed could become blessed in him. And that brings us to our passage for this morning. We're going to look at verses 15 through 25. And Paul has been explaining throughout the, the course of this message why the Mosaic law cannot make a person right with God. Why it is that the law is not equipped to make you right with God. And so in this passage we're going to see he's going to lay out four statements about the Mosaic Law that help us understand what is the relationship between God's promise that he made to Abraham and the set of commands that he gave to the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. So that first, the first of those four statements he is going to make can be summarized like this. The law does not nullify the promise. The Mosaic Law does not nullify the promise. So go ahead and join me and follow along as I read verses 15 through 18. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So Paul begins by comparing God's covenant with Abraham with a human agreement where once the terms are set and agreed upon, it cannot be altered. And his point is that when God made his covenant with Abraham, that covenant was the unchangeable basis on which he would interact with his people. At the heart of God's covenant with Abraham was a set of promises, which we can summarize in three Ps. People, place, and presence. God had promised to multiply Abraham's descendants into a great nation of people. He had, given, he had promised to give them a place to live. And he had promised that his presence would dwell with them. And this set of promises was passed down from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob and his 12 sons and their descendants. Now, it's helpful to know that in both Hebrew and in Greek, the word that is translated offspring or seed, just like uh, other English translations render it, 
is a collective noun, meaning that it can refer to an individual or a group depending on the context. So if I say to you, I have a bag of grass seed in my garage, no one in here really thinks that that bag just has one singular grain or seed in it. You understand from the context that there are thousands of little grass seeds inside of it. So it all depends on the context of whether it refers to, some, uh, to an individual seed or a group or a plural set of seeds. And so that ambiguity is present even in the Old Testament itself. So in Genesis 17, for example, this, listen to what God says to Abraham in verse 7. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. So in that passage, it's very clear that the term offspring or seed refers to many, many descendants throughout the generations. And yet, later in that very same chapter, he also says this in verses 19 and 21. Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. So here's the key thing to catch. According to Genesis 17, the fulfillment of many offspring, of countless generations of offspring, hinges upon the birth of one singular individual offspring. And that, in this case, is Isaac. But it goes beyond that. You see, in Genesis 22, God also highlights the singular nature of this seed that is in view, this offspring. Listen to what God says to Abraham shortly after stopping him from sacrificing his son Isaac. This is Genesis 22, verses 17 and 18. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So there's a very important pronoun in there. Did you catch it? It's the singular pronoun, his. God's promised blessings to Abraham hinge on an individual descendant, an individual offspring who would defeat the enemies of God and bring blessing to the nations. So another way of thinking about this is to say that when God made those promises to Abraham and his offspring, he was making those promises to his son, Jesus Christ, the ultimate offspring of Abraham. And that's what Paul is trying to drive home here in Galatians chapter 3. It was only 430 years later that God instituted the Mosaic law to the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai. And when God gave that law, he never intended that law to replace what he had promised to Abraham. It was never intended as a substitute. Because after all, God had sworn to give Abraham and his offspring the fulfillment of those promises 
on the basis of faith, not on the basis of doing. So up to this point, Paul has shown that the law brings a curse rather than blessing. It brings condemnation rather than justification. And it operates on the principles of doing and earning rather than believing and receiving. Oh, and by the way, it also came 430 years after God gave the promises to Abraham. So if you're following along in the track of what Paul is saying here, a natural question then is, okay, then why did God give the law in the first place? And that's the question he's going to address here in verses 19 through 20. And the answer that he gives is the second statement that we're going to see about the Mosaic law here is that the law was given to expose sin. So the law doesn't nullify the promise. And now second, the law was given to expose sin. So follow along as I read verses 19 and 20. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Now, if when you read through that, you started to scratch your head and furrow your brow, that's probably the right reaction because these are arguably two of the hardest verses in Galatians to fully grasp what Paul is trying to say here. So I'm going to do my best to unpack this. God gave the Mosaic law to bring sin out into the open and expose it more clearly as a violation of his moral character and his holiness. So by giving the Mosaic law... It shows just how gross and pervasive and nasty and disgusting sin truly is. Paul makes a similar point in Romans chapter 7, verse 13, when he explains that God gave the law in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So my wife and I enjoy watching crime investigation shows, or as my sons like to call them, old people TV. And one of the things that you discover as you watch enough of these sort of crime investigation shows is that forensic investigators will use this substance called luminol. Now, luminol is this substance that reveals the presence of blood that is often completely invisible to the naked eye. So when you apply this luminol, it brings out into the open something that is actually there. It's not making something up. It's not producing something. It's merely exposing something that otherwise we might not have seen. And that's exactly what God's law does for us and for sin. It brings it out into the open. It shows the grossness and the nastiness and the awfulness of our sin. Now, in addition to telling us that God's purpose in giving the law was to expose sin, he also tells us that the Mosaic law came with a built-in expiration date. 
the arrival of Jesus Christ, the promised offspring. So in other words, when God gave the law, he intended it to have authority over God's people until Christ came along. And in that sense, it's like the milk you buy at the store, right? It has that little saying on it, best if used by, and then it fills in this sort of expiration date. The Mosaic law, when God gave it, had that built-in expiration date printed on it, best if used by until the promised seed, Jesus Christ, comes. That was its built-in expiration date. And the temporary nature of the Mosaic law is further shown by the nature of the law itself. And this is what I think Paul is trying to get at. You see, in contrast to the promise that God spoke directly to Abraham face to face, the Mosaic law came through angels and then a mediator, Moses, and then to the people. Do you see the, the sort of steps of, of distance of removal there, right? How much more meaningful is it if I want to communicate something, if I do it face to face versus if I give it to one person who then gives it to another person who then communicates it to the ultimate person I'm trying to reach? There's an immediacy here that, that, is, that is contained within God's promise to Abraham that the Mosaic law doesn't have. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, I, I'm really not that tempted to rely on the authority of the Mosaic law. And yet, it still has a purpose for us, right? When we read God's law as revealed in Scripture, it does expose our sin. It exposes our thoughts and our motives and our attitudes, not just our direct actions, but the very motivations of the heart to show us our need for Christ. In that sense, God's law is like a cold splash of water to the face or someone grabbing us by the shirt and saying, wake up to the reality of your sin. So the Mosaic law doesn't nullify the promise. It um, was given to expose sin. And now third, in verses 21 and 22, Paul indicates that the law cannot give life. So follow along as I read verses 21 and 22. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So, understandably, after Paul has said what seems to be like a string of negative things about the Mosaic law, it makes, someone, makes sense that someone might ask, so why, why did God even bother? And, if he, and, and why does it go against what God is doing with the promise? And Paul, in effect, says, absolutely not. Because God never intended the Mosaic law to be the means by which we gained eternal life. And this is clear right from the start, even in the Old Testament, because there's this pattern that there's always God does something for his people, and then in response, he says, therefore, live this way. 
It's, it's often referred to in grammar terms. I know this has been heavy on grammar. Sorry about that. But the indicative, God does this, and then the imperative, therefore, live or respond in this way. You see, the law is a good thing that God gave, but it had a very specific purpose. And that purpose was not as a path for us to earn eternal life. Trying to use the Mosaic law to earn eternal life is like trying to use a screwdriver to drive a nail. A screwdriver is an excellent tool, but it's not designed to drive a nail. So instead of thinking about the Mosaic law being the means by which we gain eternal life, God used it to imprison everything under sin. And through the condemnation of the Old Testament law and all of Scripture, all of creation is under God's judgment. Adam and Eve's rebellion affected not only humanity, but creation itself, bringing it under a curse. But by doing that, what it enables God to do is apply one solution to it all. And that solution is expressed in verse 22 as the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So the solution to all creation being under God's judgment is trusting in Christ and receiving the gift of eternal life rather than doing the law and trying to earn our standing before God. And that leads us to our fourth statement that Paul is going to make about the Mosaic law here in verses 23 through 25. And that is that the law was a babysitter until Christ came. So follow along as I read verses 23 through 25. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So... Paul restates the situation that all of us as humanity find ourselves in before Christ, held captive under the condemnation of the curse of the law for failing to perfectly obey God. Now, until that time that Christ would come, God intended the Mosaic law as a, as the ESV translates here, as a guardian. And there's a challenge in really rendering that word into a, a good English equivalent. We don't really have a, a strict parallel in our culture. You see, in the Greco-Roman world, wealthy families would have a servant or a slave who was responsible for taking the young boy back and forth to school, overseeing his conduct. His responsibilities would include things like carrying his books, taking the child to athletic practice, overseeing his meals, making sure his homework got done, and even overseeing his social engagements. And so the closest equivalent perhaps today that we would have is either maybe like an au pair or a babysitter. And as we all know, babysitters are a good thing for kids. For any number of reasons, parents might need to do things where their children are not best uh, accompanying them. And so the job of the babysitter is to make sure 
that the children remain safe and have their basic needs taken care of. So there's a sense in which God gave the Mosaic Law as a babysitter to temporarily watch over God's people and protect them and make sure their basic needs were met until a point in the future. Now, of course, those of us who are adults can probably remember reaching that age where we thought, I don't need a babysitter anymore. But mom and dad were like, uh, we're not quite ready just to leave you at home because we think you could be a risk to yourself or to others. And so we feel that tension of, well, I'm old enough to be an adult and take care of myself. And our parents are like, eh, maybe not quite yet. So the picture here is that once a child does reach the age of maturity and adulthood, there's no longer a need for a babysitter. Now that Christ has come, the Mosaic law is no longer needed to govern our relationship with God and with others because we, through Jesus Christ, have been declared not guilty on the basis of believing and receiving rather than doing and earning. So a lot of ground we've covered this morning. Let me try to sum up here. Paul has shared with us four realities about the Mosaic Law. First, it does not nullify God's promise. Second, it exposes sin. Third, it cannot give eternal life. And fourth, it was a babysitter for God's people until Jesus Christ came. Now, some of you here this morning or watching online may have never put your faith in Jesus Christ. Deep down, you think you are either good enough or can become good enough to be right with God. Deep down, you think that the law, that your obedience, that doing what God says, you can become a good enough person in order for God to say, you're good. We're all good here. Friend, that is not reality because God demands perfection. Not one single misstep, not one single sin. That's what's required. And so your only hope is to find another way to be right with God. Or maybe some of you here have tried and said, I've tried to be a good enough person. I've tried really hard to keep God's commands and I just keep failing. I can't live up to that standard. And my words to you are, you're right. You can't. God never designed his law as a means by which you could be right with God. The answer is instead of trying to do God's law and earn your standing before God, is to believe in Jesus Christ and receive the promises that he made to Abraham. And for those of us who've already put our trust in Jesus, we can still all too easily fall into the trap of thinking that our relationship with God is based on doing and earning rather than believing and receiving. At the end of the day, we all know deep down as believers that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And so instead of trying to obey God to earn his favor, we obey God because he has already given us his favor in Christ. 
Those of you who are probably a little bit older than me and, and above recognize the name Paul Harvey. For over 40 years, he had a radio program where twice a day he would offer commentary on current events and life. He was a masterful storyteller and had remarkable delivery. And back in 1978, he wrote a short commentary entitled, God Made a Farmer. Now that short speech was made into a Super Bowl commercial back in 2013 for Ram Trucks. And I can hardly watch that without tearing up a bit. It's beautiful. And Harvey begins that speech with a reference to God looking down on his garden paradise. And throughout the speech, after rattling off numerous things a farmer does, he pauses to say, so God made a farmer. And as I was preparing this message and thinking about how I might uh, try to drive home what God is saying in this passage, I came to the point where I thought, what if I took a stab at adapting Paul Harvey's words around the theme of God made a promise as a way of trying to hit home what this text is saying. So here is my attempt. And on that day when Adam and Eve plunged creation into chaos through their rebellion, God looked down on his planned paradise and said, I need a serpent crusher. So God made a promise. God said, I need somebody who will be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth with godly descendants, rule over creation, subdue it, have dominion over every inch of creation, and mediate my presence. So God made a promise. I need someone strong enough to defeat the great serpent Satan and yet gentle enough to open the womb of a barren woman. Somebody to lead sheep fast for 40 days while being tempted in the wilderness, proclaim liberty to the captives and the oppressed in the power of the Holy Spirit, cast out demons, and teach as one who has unmatched authority. So God made a promise. God said, I need somebody who will spend all night wrestling in prayer and in the morning call ordinary people to take up their cross and follow him. I need somebody who will weep with his friends over the death of a loved one and tell them that he is the resurrection and the life. I need someone who can feed 5,000 men with five loaves of bread and two fish and then walk on water to catch up with his friends out on the sea. I need somebody who will open the eyes of the blind, open the ears of the deaf, loose the tongue of the mute, strengthen the legs of the lame, and change the spots of a leper. So God made a promise. God had to have somebody willing to set his face towards Jerusalem, to suffer at the hands of Jews and Gentiles, and yet stop alongside the road to help a man crying out for mercy. So God made a promise. God said, I need somebody strong enough to clear the money changers from the temple courts, yet gentle enough to forgive a woman caught in adultery. Someone who will stop his teaching to heal a lame man lowered through the roof just to get to him. It has to be someone who obeys every last command and calls out the religious hypocrisy of the leaders. 
somebody to turn the other cheek, bless the meek, strengthen the weak, and heal seven days a week. Somebody who will lay down his life as a ransom and rise on the third day to defeat sin, death, and the devil. Somebody who would unite the family of God from every tribe and tongue and from every language and people group by his very own spirit in a new creation cleansed of every last stain of the fall and smile when his blood-bought people Sing for all of eternity, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So God made a promise.